0: We're in Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel, if you're able to do that. Mark chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. This is just after Jesus and His disciples had had their last meal together. They celebrated the Passover together. And now we have these words. Mark 14, beginning in verse 26. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You'll all become deserters, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We invite you to be seated. The title of the sermon today is The Preparation of Jesus. And I've been thinking a lot about this story. It's a familiar one for those who've been in the church for any period of time, and much has been said about it, most of it in my estimation, very worthwhile. But to try and get an angle on this for where we have been in the gospel according to Mark and where we find ourselves as a church has been a bit challenging. And I found myself over and over again returning to the story of my grandfather. And, uh, some of you who've talked to me this week have already heard this story because it's been so on my mind, I just keep sharing it everywhere that I am. And it's, it's the story of my grandfather. It starts out in a pretty dark place, but I think we find Jesus in a dark place here. My grandfather was a man of faith uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, but didn't start in our denomination, uh, his walk with God. But he was dying of bone cancer. And if you've ever walked with anybody through that process, you know how excruciating it really can be. And So this man of faith who had given his heart to Jesus in his 30s and walked with him all his life in his 80s, faced quite torturous death. And he would say something to us repeatedly during those years in which he was suffering. He would say, The old boy is after me. And he would ask us to pray. And as a kid, I didn't know what that meant. I thought he was talking about Satan. And I thought, really? Satan's after you? Like, that seemed weird to me. And it seemed deeply unnerving. And it made me not really want to go to his room in the nursing home. Because I didn't know what was in there. You know? But as I got older uh, in in the church, and I started to understand the Church of the Nazarene lingo, I mean, I was raised with it, but I didn't understand it all, uh, I realized that that phrase, the old man, the old boy, was one that Nazarenes often used to talk about their former self, before they came to follow Jesus. That, that old carnal nature. And it's only now, long after I lost my grandfather, he died in 1993, that I finally understood what he was asking us to pray for. Because he felt that old flesh rising up as he was suffering. He felt that version of himself that was a reality for him prior to following Jesus, starting to reassert itself in his final days. But he always followed up that phrase, the old boy is after me, with another one. But there's too much to gain to lose. And then he would ask us to pray. That story has in many ways shaped my life. Not intentionally but sort of subconsciously. And when I faced my own period of intense physical suffering, which I thought might result in my death, my grandfather's words continued to come back to me. And I finally learned what he meant. There's something of that here in Jesus. There's something about this moment that is causing Jesus to question everything that he has spent a lifetime believing. And I know it's easy to dismiss it because Jesus is God. Our confessions tell us that, and it's true. It was demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead. And yet, he struggles. What does it mean to be the people of God in the midst of life-altering moments that leave us a panic? What does it mean when we lose what we thought we were? What does it mean to hear God's voice? How do we hear it? Is it just random happenstance that maybe He speaks to some people and not to others? Is there anything at all that we can do? Proverbs 17 verse 24 says this, A discerning person keeps wisdom in view but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. Do you, do you get the picture that's being drawn there? If wisdom is somehow, we're just going to call you wisdom, Roger, for good reason. <laughs> if wisdom is in front of us, then what the Proverbs is saying is that a discerning person, a person who is properly founded in knowledge and truthfulness, will keep wisdom in view. We may have to turn this way, but we'll never be out of that line of sight. We may have to turn this way, but we can get it out of the corner of our eye. The discerning person always keeps wisdom in view. But the fool has ADD. Spiritual ADD, right? Darting this way and that way. What's this? That's cool. Wisdom's behind us now, right? And we get all turned around and then we look and we don't know where we are. Have you ever driven that way? Ooh, what's that? Antiques. Where are we? I don't know. Now that you have GPS, you can find yourself, but you didn't always have that. A fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. It seems that what is essential for Jesus in this moment, in which everything in his life is going to fall apart, one of his best friends, he's been with him for at least three years in the gospel, it could have been longer, five, six years. He spent all of his time with these twelve guys. One of them is right then betraying him to people who want him dead. The other ten of the other eleven who remained with him that night were going to fail him soon. And he knew. That on the other side of his arrest and his trials was going to be the most torturous death that the Roman Empire had to that point in history invented. He was going to be crucified. This is quite a night for Jesus. How is he going to keep wisdom in view? The hardest time for us to keep our eye on the ball is when we are stressed, when we're anxious. When we are fearful. In those periods of time we are in an instinctive fight or flight mode. Right? Fear has taken over. The adrenaline is coursing. The panic is palpable. And that's the last time that we are instinctively going to be thinking clearly. Adrenaline, high blood pressure, all of those things. It depresses our ability to reason and to think. And if we think for a moment that Jesus wasn't in that kind of a moment, all we have to do is look at the gospel accounts of the things he says he was suffering. In the gospel, according to Luke, he was so feverishly in agony that he was either doing one of two things. The Greek is unclear. Either he had burst capillaries in his veins and he was literally bleeding out of his pores because of the hypertension. Or he was sweating so profusely that it looked like blood pouring from a wound. Either way, Jesus is in quite a moment. And for us, when we're in those moments, our instincts often take over. And it's hard, the old saying, is to see the forest for the trees. That's where Jesus is. And his disciples were headed. And their divergent responses in this moment is going to help us, I think to understand what it means to keep wisdom in view in the midst of a world turning upside down. And so in the course of learning that, of discovering wisdom and discernment in the midst of intense anxiety, we're going to explore three aspects of this story with relation to Jesus. The first is Jesus' agitation. The second, they're all A's just so that you can remember them, not because they're the best words for these points. Jesus' agitation. Second, Jesus' admonition. And third, Jesus' actions. So we're going to start with Jesus' agitation. Look at these verses. So it begins with this uh, prediction that Peter is going to fail Jesus. And we need to have that in view because part of his failure begins right here in the garden. But really I want to I pick up here in verse 32. It says, "Then They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John, And then these words, do you hear them? He began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. It is so hard to adequately express the emotionality of these terms for Jesus. I'm just going to give you some places in Mark and then in the Bible where this word is used. In the Greek, the word translated deeply grieved. It was used earlier in the gospel according to Mark, in chapter 6, verse 26. And it was describing the emotions of Herod when he had that party, some of you remember the story, and his daughter, his stepdaughter danced for him, and he was so enamored by it, he's a pretty lewd guy, that he promised her anything she asked in the kingdom, and she came to him and said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, he had arrested John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was widely recognized by the people as a prophet from God. And so he had arrested him, but he was not going to kill him because of what it would do to him. And can you imagine the moment when, the daughter, when his daughter-in-law says to him, I want his head. And he's just promised in front of all of his guests he'll do whatever she says. That emotion is what Jesus is describing. It's also used in the book of Genesis, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament book of Genesis, in chapter 4, verse 6, where the first two uh, humans born after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel. Cain is the elder brother, Abel is the younger brother, and they both bring sacrifices to God. And God loves Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's he doesn't like so much. And some of you maybe have been that child in the family where you bring something to your parent and the parent says, eh, I've seen better. Or, what are you aiming at with this thing? And the feeling that Cain had in that moment is described by this word. He was deeply grieved. And of course, that feeling led him to murder his brother. This is an intensely emotional uh, uh, word that Jesus is describing. It describes the emotions of that moment. That a sin you have been hiding, maybe for months, maybe for years, has just been exposed. Like those people, what was that website, that affair website that got leaked? See, none of us, I hope, were on the list. I certainly wasn't on the list. But if you were on that list, can you imagine the feeling of being exposed? Like, ah! That's what Jesus is describing. That kind of emotion. <clears throat> wow, I hurt my voice. <laughs> this describes the emotions that come at that moment when you realize there are no more ter- turns in the road, no more choices to make, and you're headed in a direction you couldn't even imagine. I remember the first time it happened to me when I was turning on an off-ramp in the middle of a snowstorm in Massachusetts where I grew up and I realized I had no control. You been there? there That's scary. This is what Jesus is describing. This is the heart shudder that comes when someone who matters to us condemns us, rejects us, accuses us, posts something on Facebook about us. You know the feeling, Right? I hope not everyone does, but I I fear that almost all of us do. This is how Jesus describes his feelings to his friends. He comes to them and says, I am so anxious, I feel like I'm going to die. Why? Why would Jesus feel that way? Is this just an act? How can God feel that way? Right, he's pretending, right, for us? What? Well, many have speculated, but I suspect, at least in Jesus' humanity, it was a combination of things. And I've already laid them out. I'll lay them out again. One of his 12 best earthly friends was right then betraying him to his enemies. Ten of the other 11 were going to abandon him that night, and he was going to be alone with only one of his 12 disciples sitting there. The people that he came to instruct and deliver and save. The very people that he had been working with and teaching and healing and instructing and ministering to. They, that night, were going to turn him over for execution. And before the sun set the next day, he would be executed in the most torturous way yet imagined by the Roman Empire. He would be crucified. And he was waiting there in that garden for all of that to happen. Where would you be? It's very hard for me to think my way into Jesus' feelings in that moment. I trust his words, but to understand them, it took something else. During my treatments for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, I underwent six chemotherapy sessions that happened every three weeks. And by the time I reached the fourth session, people have asked me, was chemo bad? And I said, it depends on what you mean. Physically, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But psychologically, I'm very weak, apparently. By the fourth treatment, I could not get the courage to go. I was a bundle of nerves. And so the doctor prescribed anti-anxiety medication for me to take just so that I could make it into the chemo treatment. On the last day of my treatment, on the sixth one, I was so anxious that just in catching a smell of the chemo ward and walking in, I became violently ill and I threw up and threw up and threw up and threw up. And they gave me something, which I thank God for, putting in the universe, which erased my memory. I don't know what happened after that. They gave me something, and that was the end of my last chemo day. I came to at home asking Jen where I got this certificate and this rock. And she said, you picked them out. And I said, when did I do that? I was so anxious in those moments that I, can, I, I think I can kind of understand what Jesus was doing on that night. I can't appreciate the full. I knew I was going to survive this. Maybe you've been there too. So how is he going to think clearly at a time like that? I'll tell you this. When I was going in for chemo treatments, I was not giving a thought to how Jen felt. I was not giving a thought to the people I was pastoring. I wasn't giving a thought to the youth group that I was working and ministering with. I wasn't giving a thought to the youth retreat we were going to go on the very next day after I received my treatments. I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. I was just thinking about me. How is Jesus going to know God's will in that kind of a circumstance? And to add to it all, Jesus' agitation, I suspect, was that he knew full well what was coming and he could have avoided it. He knew Judas was coming. He knew they had no torches. He knew that if he just left, no one would ever find him again. He could have avoided it all. And that's what he's asking God for. Is it okay for me to leave? Can you let me go, God? Is there another way? Can I pass this cup? Can I slip out? You do what you need to do. He could have avoided it. He wasn't surprised that Judas came. He knew it was coming. And yet he needed to know God's will in that moment. Do I stay and let this happen? Or do I leave and escape it? That was Jesus' agitation. So here's his admonition to his disciples. In that moment, Jesus already does something that I found impossible to do. And maybe some of you are better people than I am. But Jesus, when He's feeling that way, He gives instructions to His disciples. He's worried about them. Verse 37, He says this, He came and found them sleeping, and He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake, and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. I love this phrase, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. It's so good in the Greek, because what He means is, the wind is willing, but the body is weak, meaning that your words are easy. But your behavior is something else. You said you'd stand with me. You shot the wind out of your mouth. But your body is sleeping. The wind is easy. The words are easy. But the flesh is weak. But notice what Jesus did not do. He did not ask them to pray for him. Do you notice that? In the midst of his agitation, he did not ask his disciples, to pray for him. He told them to pray for themselves. To pray that they would not have to enter into the space that he was entering. And he had already warned them about this. He had already warned them that they had to be ready when the time came. You remember the sermon we preached on Christmas Sunday for those of you who were here. In Mark chapter 14 verses 32 to 37. They were all worried about the end times and about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And Jesus won't tell them when he's coming back. He says he doesn't even know. But he tells them they have to be ready. They have to keep awake. They have to be doing the work of the kingdom. You notice the repetition of the phrase keep awake? It's all over that passage and it's all over this one. He warned them not to be found sleeping when their master returned. They were to be busy with kingdom work, loving and living like Jesus, praying to their God when he came to them. And he did that very thing this night. He came to them. And he found them asleep. When the time of testing came, they failed to remain loyal to him. They failed to love him. They were not prepared. The stress of the moment made them lethargic. And they went to sleep. And stress, busyness, anxiety, they have ways of doing the same thing to us. Keeping us from those things that would prepare us when the wheels fall off. If we spend our time and energy, sowing to the wind is the biblical phrase. Casting our seeds into the air. Putting our time and our energy and our resources into all kinds of things that can't sustain us when the storms come. We'll find ourselves helpless before the winds when they arrive. I remember living in Kansas City, and uh, I loved Kansas City as a city, but I hated the storms. I say that often. And I, maybe because growing up here, I didn't really grow up with a lot of tornadoes. In Kansas City, they terrified me. And I remember when storm systems would come through, I would put on the news, and I sometimes could get no work done that day. Just watching. Is a funnel cloud coming our way? How big are the hailstones? Terrifying. But I'll tell you that people who live out there... And have grown up out there, they sort of weather that storm pretty well. They have storm cellars in the case that the tornadoes come. They build their houses with basements. They have an action plan. Some of them have little packets of stuff, which took me forever. I remember the first time when I lived in Chicago, we were pastoring in Chicago, and uh, I I heard tornado sirens go off. Have any of you here in New England heard a tornado siren? I haven't heard one. I had never heard one growing up. I and mean, we had a, a, a fire station in Uxbridge, Massachusetts that would sometimes sound an alarm. And my parents had a little book that said what it meant. And it would be so many blasts meant this and so many blasts meant that. But none of them were tornado that I knew of. Well, I, I'm living in Chicago and I hear the sound. And I'm like, what is that? So what do I do? I go out on my balcony. <laughs> I know what it was. And it was windy out there. <laughs> you know? I learned later that that's... The, One of the signs. See, when you know that those storms are coming, you prepare for them. You dig storm cellars, you have basements, you have security alarms that go off to tell people, hide, get away, right? You prepare for the storms. Snowstorms are the same here in New England. I mean, for the last three years, we've had three different people plow our driveway. And each year, I don't know if it's just us, but the person either leaves or quits. So, two years ago, we had a gentleman plowing our driveway and he moved to the Pacific Northwest. He moved to Washington. And then last year, we had someone doing it, and I called him this year. He said, We're not doing that anymore. So, this year, I don't have anybody. So now, snowstorms panicked me because the last one I had to shovel it. (laughs) You prepare. Where you live, you prepare. That's what Jesus was admonishing his disciples. He was not promising that these times won't come, but that they have to be busy doing what will prepare them for those times. And they were not doing it. They were sleeping through their hours of preparation. And so, even though Jesus, as God, could have predicted Peter was going to fail him, he also could have predicted it if he was just a human being. Because, of course, Peter was going to fail him. He wasn't prepared. Cancer revealed to me too that I wasn't prepared. So there's something personal here for me. So Jesus, Jesus was truly agitated, but in the midst of that agitation, he admonished his disciples to be ready, which tells us something about how Jesus prepared himself for that moment. We'll have to look here at Jesus' actions. Look at verse 35. These are the words Jesus prayed. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And then in verse 39, after he speaks to his disciples, it says, And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Now, some of us, at least in the church I was raised in, I would have had an old person come up to me and say, well, that was Jesus' problem. He just repeated himself. God doesn't like mindless repetition. He should have tried something else. First one didn't know. They wouldn't have said that right, but they would have said it in other texts. See, Jesus, on the night before he died for us, he asked two things of God. He asked that God deliver him. But he also asked that God's will be done. remember getting into an argument with a layperson because I prayed over someone for healing and I said, not our will though, Father thy will be done and this, this lay person took me to the tool shed and told me that the person wasn't healed because I lacked faith because I used to cop out your will, not my will oh, then you don't believe it'll happen couldn't believe that I'm like, ah, read Jesus, leave me alone I said it nicer than that I said, I understand your perspective. Clearly, I don't share it. But Jesus didn't pray that prayer. Deliver me from my time of trial. But your will be done. He did not pray it after the soldiers came. He didn't pray it while they were crucifying him. He didn't pray it while the tornado was bearing down on top of his house. He prayed it before. In fact, the Gospel according to Mark says it had been Jesus' practice throughout His earthly ministry to go alone by Himself and have these kinds of conversations with God. In the Gospel according to Matthew, when His disciples asked how should we pray, and He taught them how to pray, these are the words He told them to use. Our Father who is in the heavens, blessed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. On earth as it is in the heavens, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive also our debtors. Lead us not into trial. It's the same word. (laughs) Temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. This is the same prayer. Same prayer. On the worst night of his life, he's quoting the the Lord's prayer. Couldn't he think of something better than that? You see, Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and the wheels fell off, continued to do the exact same thing he had been doing his whole life. He prayed the same words with the same heart. More earnestness. I'm sure he was putting a little more emphasis on the lead us not into temptation. A little more emphasis on give us our daily bread, but it was the same words. Jesus was ready to do God's will on that night no matter the cost because he had already been doing God's will. And Jesus was also in a position to ask for God's deliverance because he had demonstrated with his life to this point that he was willing to do God's will first. He had already shown that he would say yes to what God asked of him. And I want to say this about this. I do not believe we can discern God's will in moments of stress and high anxiety if we have not been committed to His will in seasons of ease. I do not believe we can discern God's will in moments of stress and anxiety if we have not been committed to God's will in seasons of ease. It is the practices of Jesus' life prior to Gethsemane that made him able to hear God's voice in Gethsemane. There's this uh, movie I like. Don't read too much into it. It's not sci-fi, really. It's called The Born Identity. Some of you have seen it. It's a movie about this uh, CIA hitman. Don't read too much into it. <laughs> who, uh, who got hurt in the line of duty and woke up with no memory. And he didn't know who he was or where he was. He didn't, know any, he didn't know his name. He didn't know where he lived. He didn't know anything about himself. He's just a complete wash. Uh, and, and then suddenly he's sleeping in a park, trying to figure things out. And two guys come up and they try to arrest him. And all of a sudden, his ninja skills kick in. Right? And suddenly he knows how to defend himself. Takes these two guys out. Right? And they're laying on the floor. And he goes, wow, what am, who am I? <laughs> Some of us think that's how God's will works, or God's voice in our lives—that we can just go about our lives completely oblivious, kind of doing whatever we think is right or reasonable, following the next thing on our list, and then we expect, in moments of crisis, our God instinct to kick in, and all of a sudden we're Jason Bourne. Yeah, <laughs> who? And then if it doesn't work, we say. Was oh, this is a terrible God. He made Samson kill a whole bunch of guys with a, monkey, with a donkey jawbone. would have been cooler with a monkey jawbone. But a donkey, a donkey jawbone. Why in the world couldn't he have gotten me out of that little stick? Or we come to the conclusion that there is no God. Because no God would have failed me in that moment. And the truth is, you probably failed in that moment because you had not had any care for him before it. In this moment of darkest night for Jesus, he discovered God's will and received the courage to endure this time of trial and to make his way to the cross, not because of the prayer he prayed that night, but because of the patterns of his life leading up to that night. Those things prepared him for what was needed. Proverbs 17.24 says, A discerning person keeps wisdom in view, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. If we are to keep wisdom in view, we must do it when wisdom is easy to see. Because when the clouds come, and the storms rage, and the terror is palpable, if we don't know what direction wisdom was in, we will not find it in the midst of the storm. If you don't know north when the tornado hits your house, you're not going to find it while the funnel clouds over you. It's the patterns of our everyday lives, the priorities of our daily and weekly schedules that either are preparing us to discern God's will in our moments of crisis or not. Jesus did nothing on that frightful night. This is the remarkable thing about Jesus. He did nothing on that frightful night that he had not been doing throughout his entire life. And when his life was literally on the line, the same patterns, the same practices brought him into the space of God's will. They did not deliver him from the moment, but they helped him to know what was right to do in it. There's an old saying that I love. I first heard it in the movie Spy Games, but it's much older than that. It's this When did Noah build the ark? Before the flood. Before the flood. When do we build our arks? Like everybody else in the story of Noah. In the flood. (laughs) When did Noah build the ark? Before the flood. For each of us. And I hate to be that guy. Debbie Downer. Wah wah. But our flood is coming, it's inevitable. No matter how great the moment is now, our flood is coming. We know it is. That's why we have IRAs. It's why we have 401Ks. It's why we have all this insurance, life insurance, auto insurance, homeowners insurance, flood insurance, and all this stuff. It's why we do that. We know the flood is coming. We know the kind of world this is. And for those of us who are especially blessed, we got to live for about six years of our lives in our parents' home where it never felt like anything bad could happen. And if that was you and it was me, that's great. That's wonderful. And we think, that's that's life and you think no 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 that's obliviousness it's great but it's stupid the flood is coming for all of us whether it's our death at the end whether it's sickness in the middle whether it happens with our kids or our jobs the flood is coming we know that so what are we doing to prepare some churches would have you to say give money to the church and then when you need it financial windfall will come well i'm not going to sell that that that, that well, that's well it's not biblical Little I could say about it, that was godly, so we'll leave it at that. But we do have to prepare, because what needs to happen when our flood comes, hear me church, what needs to happen when our flood comes, is not that we need to be wealthy or find a way to survive, it's not that we need to keep all the things we have, it's not that we need to make sure that life goes back to whatever it was for those six years when we were kids, what we need in the midst of the worst of things is to be faithful to Jesus. Because he is our only hope. He is the one who will resurrect us from the dead. If that's a lie, the whole thing's a joke. It doesn't become a joke when you accept Jesus, it's a joke without him. It's all meaningless. That's what Ecclesiastes says. We get stuff for a little while, we keep it for a little while, it's nice for a little while. And then we lose it, or we get frustrated, or we start fighting amongst ourselves. We start eating each other. And then it's not happy anymore. Then we get sick. Then maybe we die. Then we lose somebody that we love. The world is just a joke. If this is all we've got. Right? What does Ecclesiastes say? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Jesus tells us that there is something after this. And Jesus is the only reason for you to be nice when the wheels fall off. Why bother being nice when the wheels fall off? Why should Jesus on that night not go to his disciples and say, You people are idiots! I need you and look at what you're doing to me! You're sleeping! I'm going to be killed tomorrow! Why do you care about me? But does Jesus do that? No. Jesus doesn't have to worry about himself on that night. Jesus can care for them because he knows there's a future. He can love anyway. He can forgive anyway. He can be patient anyway. Because there's nothing a human can do to him that would be more important than what God will do for him. My grandfather, the old boy, is after me. But there's too much to gain to lose. And so every day he asked us to pray that he could be a witness to those nurses that he might have one opportunity to share the gospel again before he died. When people came to his funeral, his most amazing funeral, it would be better than anyone I have, I'll tell you that. Just a layperson, just worked in a factory, and, um, and hundreds and hundreds of people filled that church, not because he had built anything for them, or because he had helped anybody in any way, but he had led them to Jesus. Hundreds of people, because he did a little Bible study in his little factory. This is the guy who was fearful to his last day that he would somehow turn his back on the commitment that he made, and yet he could still love. What are you building? What are you building? Where do you spend your time? Where do you invest yourself? What does your weekly schedule look like for your family? What kind of a foundation is it establishing for them? When I had cancer... The idea of a bucket list came forward, right? What do I want to do before I die? That is such a worldly, stupid thing. You can't believe in life after death and even have one. I mean, you don't think there'll be waterfalls in heaven? You don't think there'll be a world to explore, animals to see, food to eat? It's all the way that the Bible describes the afterlife. Because it's a new heaven and a new earth. I don't need to spend my life in this world trying to get all the experiences I can so that in case there's no God, I haven't missed anything. I need to spend my time in this world preparing for the flood when it comes. So that I can be faithful to Jesus and still love people when the wheels fall off. Putting my faith in a life. That Jesus promises he'll give me even if the world conspires to take it away. This is what we learn from him. And he doesn't, he doesn't suddenly become Jason Born the night of his death. He had been practicing for that night his whole life. Little things, right? When he became popular, the temptation to be a king was there with him. When he fed 5,000 people in the wilderness... A lot of people probably would have set up a town there, named him the Almighty Savior, and given him all their money and resources, and he could have been wealthy, but he didn't do it. When he had to stand up in front of the Jewish leaders and he had to criticize what they were doing, and he knew what it was going to result in, he had the courage to do it, and to do God's will, not what was best for him. When he had to speak those hard words to his disciples, and they withered from a group of hundreds to seventies, down to twelve, because they didn't like what he had to say, he kept saying it anyway. He had been doing this his whole life. Following God's will, no matter the cost. On this night, he was ready. And this was the worst imaginable moment for Jesus. When did Noah build the ark? Before the flood. What are you building? Are you ready? If the worst happens tomorrow, are you ready? Not ready to die, that's easy. (laughs) Ready to live through it. Ready to be faithful through it. Whether to be godly through it. Are you ready? Many of us, like Peter, would say, absolutely, I'm ready. And I think Jesus' response is, only if you've already been doing it. If that's the first time you do it, you will not be ready for it. If the first person you ever forgive, this is going to get a little dark, but I have to say it. If the first person you ever forgive, really, really forgive, is the person who molests your child, you won't be able to do it. No way. You will not be able to do it. But if you have been forgiving people all across your life for the small things cutting you off in traffic, auditing you, right? Not giving you the right change back from the cash register, overcooking your meal at a restaurant, right? Somebody putting away the dishes in the wrong place, if you've been already in the practice of forgiving those things and learning how to live out to them, then the moment that the worst possible thing happens and you have to be like Jesus, you'll be more ready for it. But if you spent your life pretty much condemning people and thinking everybody's an idiot and saying, "Where's your common sense?" And then you face that, well, of course you're not going to be. Of course you're not going to be able to do it. You built a whole house of, of, of judgmentalism and criticism and fear. How in the world at that moment where you, you think you're Jason Bourne, God's just going to kick the ninja in you? My point is that discipleship and holiness is a commitment to practice every day what we need when it matters. And Jesus evidenced that for us. And his disciples, they didn't get it, but they learned it on this night. When they find out how ill-prepared they were when the moment comes, they spend the rest of their life living very differently than they did up to this point with Jesus. This evening changes everything for them. Not just because Jesus rose from the dead, but because they learned what it took to get to the cross for Jesus. And they realized the same preparations had to be part of their lives too. And the book of Acts shows us the choices they made after they learned this lesson. The Gospels show us who they were before they learned it. What are you building? Would you trust God in the little things so that you're ready when the wheels fall off? They will happen. For some of you, they already have. You're like, yeah, of course they'll happen. And then for others going, nah, not everybody. You know, some people, maybe a lot of people, but not everybody. No, Everybody. Everybody dies. Everybody suffers. Everybody faces those moments which the wheels fall off. Are you ready? Not to survive it, not to thrive through it, not to rise bigger and better, but to be Jesus. Even if you don't make it out of that darkness when you enter it, can you be Jesus all the way to the end? I pray you make it out. Thank God I made it out once. But remember, all healing on this side of eternity is just a delay. It's like a pause, because it's coming back. Anybody who's been sick, you know what what I mean. Every bump, every hurt, is it cancer again? Ah! I live that way all the time, because I know it's coming back. You know it's coming back. But I want to be more ready than I was the last time, because the last time, I almost walked away from God forever. The last time, I was selfish, selfish. The last time I cared more about me than my wife, than my, than my family, than my church. Not the next time. I spent every day from that day to this trying to be more ready. By living into Jesus more deliberately in the small things. Good mistakes. I stopped speeding. I didn't stop speeding because of speeding. I stopped speeding because the next time I have to be committed to obedience. Every choice you make today will either flourish in your future or it will strangle the plant that's growing in faith. So let's choose to build the ark before the flood and stop blaming God when He's not there when the flood comes, when we wanted nothing to do with Him until the day it did. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks. Just for the example of Jesus. I really wish I could give you thanks for promising us that every flood will be wiped away, that the rainbow means no more suffering for the people of God, that we can all live happy, healthy, wealthy lives, and then fall, die in our sleep, peacefully, and awaken the new kingdom. That would be great. I still pray for that. I pray for that for every person here. But Heavenly Father, would you help us to be prepared when the flood comes, if that is not the road we are to walk. Help us, Heavenly Father, in the midst of our trials to be forgiving, to be gracious, to be loving, to think of others as much as we think of ourselves. This is not in us. But would you help us to be prepared? We thank you, Jesus, for your example. We pray that we will learn as well from you as your disciples did. And that there's a chance that we and our world will be transformed the way that they were able to transform theirs because of you and your power at work within them and their willingness to cooperate. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. It's all your work. None of the glory belongs to us. But we recognize the choices we need to make to live into your kingdom. Show us in our daily schedule what needs to change. Show us in our daily commitments how we are sowing to the wind. Help us to realize early what it means to build on the rock so when the wind and the waves come, we will not see our homes washed away. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.